And you may find yourself living two years into the apocalypse. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a rideshare corporation. You may find yourself in a beautiful rideshare car with a beautiful lobbyist. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? Living the days go by, driving taxi rates down. Living the days go by, hiding the scandal underground. Into the red again, after the money's counted. Yet another scandal, tax evasion all around. And you may ask yourself, how can this happen again? And you may ask yourself, where is the accountability? And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful right chair. And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful lobbyist. Letting the days go by, driving taxi rates down. Letting the days go by, hiding the scandal underground. Into the red again, after the money's counted. Yet another scandal, tax evasion all around. Same as it ever was, same as it ever was. Same as it ever was, same as it ever was. Same as it ever was, same as it ever was. Same as it ever was, same as it ever was. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. In Auckland, New Zealand, I'm Josh Edison, and in Zhuhai, China, we have Associate Professor of Philosophy currently working on a reply track to Paula Cole's 1997 hit, Where Have All the Cowboys Gone?, entitled, There They Are. It's Dr. M. Rx Dentith. Although I should point out, by the time the the song is released they will have moved on and then my my subsequent track was actually where have all the cowboys gone mm, that's what they do cowboys you can't tie them down they, well they you just can pick up and move i mean you you can you kind of well get, that's what the lessons are for yeah but yeah 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 is, okay I'll cowboys are canny they 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 know how to both tie knots and also untie knots it's kind of astounding mm. like an untie mm. knot unbelievable mm. they're a they're a rare breed now, do we have anything actually, to talk actually, about now, no, 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 I'm thinking breeding cowboys. I mean, we breed horses. We could breed cowboys. We could breed the perfect cowboy. Well, we yeah, but you'd need to breed them on some sort of a ranch, and then you'd need people to look after them to make sure they stayed there. So you'd, you'd end up with needing cowboy boys to look after your cowboys. No, no, no. And things this, could this get recursive what, pretty what, quickly. This is what cowgirls are for. You have the cowgirls uh, look after the cowboys. But that then right. raises the question, who's breeding the cowgirls? And mm. that's where things get very messy and very sexist very quickly. Yeah, okay. Well, then let's let's put that one to bed then. Put it to bed like a cowboy. With, with a cowgirl, indeed. Uh, did you want to talk about... Or, or another cow... Another did cowboy you want to keep talking about cowboys? I regret, no, no, I regret saying, bringing up this. Not heteronormative about this. Indeed, yep. Cowboy with whoever that cowboy happens to prefer. Cowperson with cowperson. Mm. Did you want to talk about Joe Yusinski's new study, or will we save that for well, a later time? I, I, basically, I basically mentioned Joe, Joe Yusinski, along with a bunch of other political scientists and psychologists and a historian, has released a paper on PLOS One. It's looking at the prevalence of conspiracy theories in the current age. His argument is... There is no uptick in belief in conspiracy theories going on. There hasn't been for quite some time. I've been pushing this line for quite some time with other researchers and journalists. It's great to have some actual empirical data to support this claim. I haven't read the paper yet, so this is a classic case of someone has come out with a paper whose conclusion I agree with, and thus I think the paper is good, but... I'm not going to be that person that goes, well, the paper must be good. I'm going to read it and work out whether it's good or not. And if I can, maybe arrange a chat with Joe, which may or may not get recorded for this podcast. So there'll be more news about Joe Yusinski and Joe Yusinski's new paper or co-authored paper in future episodes. But if you are interested, look up Joe Yusinski and PLOS One. You'll find a newly released paper looking at the prevalence of conspiracy theories in our current age and the findings are interesting just for the sheer fact that they go against the kind of common wisdom that we live in a kind of golden age 
of conspiracy theories, actually it turns out that Golden Age was still the 1960s, and it's just trending down ever since. Hmm. I'd be interested to see, though, I don't know if the study would show it, but is, it, it, there may not be a quantitative difference, but is there any sort of a qualitative difference? I mean, the thing people will say is that you don't... Um, I don't know. Maybe there are plenty of politicians who believe that that Kennedy was killed by the CIA or something, but they weren't making a big deal about it as much as you get people, uh, sort of, you know, people in high positions in the states at least talking, talking the QAnon talk and things like that, or great replacements or what have you. So I don't know if there's a difference, but it might not be a numerical one. As I pointed out on Twitter earlier today, no matter what's going on, we know there's other stuff going on. We live in an age where fascists and white supremacists are given the right of reply in the media, which was not true, or at least it wasn't, it wasn't obviously true 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So no matter what is going on with belief in conspiracy theories, there are other things going on in our society where it turns out that having the attitude of bash the fash is no longer the fashionable thing to do. No, we have to let them have their have their time on air. So there is other stuff going on, and that may mean that even if belief in conspiracy theories isn't up, people might be more open to discussing their belief in conspiracy theories. And we might be seeing more open discussion of these beliefs, even if the beliefs are no more common than they've ever been. As they say, same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Anyway, let's let's not um, pursue this any further because we might be might be depriving ourselves of material for a later episode. Uh, because that's not what we're here to talk about today. Uh, today we want to talk about Uber, which doesn't spell its name with umlauts, Uber. so I shouldn't I shouldn't say it in, a, in, a, in an exaggeratedly German way. Yes, we want to talk about Uber and the Uber files, which are not some sort of special files that are files. better than than any other files. Uh, it is a um, well, should we play a should we play a chime first? Are we, if we're going to actually start the episode properly, should we do it do it all formal like? Yes, Mister Maestro, play that tune. That's more like it. So, the Uber files are what uh, the Guardian newspaper in the state, uh, not the states, in the UK, um, is called well, the latest. Know, I mean, there is there is. There is a version of The Guardian in the US. The distinction between the US Guardian and the UK Guardian owned by the same company is that the UK Guardian is quite transphobic and the US Guardian is quite anti-transphobia. Hopefully that will not affect anything that we're about to talk about now because this is... Um, the leak of a whole of a whole uh, what's the number a hundred over a hundred and twenty four thousand documents leaked to the Guardian by a man called Mark McGann, who was a, a quite no, a high up I, sound lobbyist just, for I, Uber. I just put it here. So the notes the notes here, and this is a note written by Josh, was they they were leaked to the Guardian by former Uber lobbyist Mark McGann, and I, I realize Uber there has the capital it does. U to say a lobbyist of. Uber, but also does make it sound like he's the best lobbyist there is. He's an Uber lobbyist. It, I mean, it, it, from the sounds of things, he probably was both an Uber lobbyist and an Uber lobbyist, um, because because as we'll see, Uber's done a lot of lobbying quite successfully over the last wee while, uh, and that's kind of the problem um, for a lot of it. So the documents uh, Mr. McGann leaked. Uh, cover a period from 2013 to 2017, uh, which is when I think he was with the company. It's it's also when uh, co-founder Travis Kalanick was in charge of the company, and so he's been getting a lot of the stick here, which for uh, has worked in Uber's favour at least because as they as as he's left the company and, and is no longer running it, the people who are currently in charge of Uber, um, their line on the whole thing has been, oh, yes, no, this is very bad, and it, obviously it should never have happened, and we're sorry it did, but uh, but, but, but that was under the old guy, and and, and we, we you, you, you can be sure we don't do any of that sort of stuff. Oh, under yes. our we're under new management, new management now. I mean, yeah. we, we're, the, 
the old guy's gone. I mean, mm. he was he was bad. He was a he was a he was a rotten egg. He was a bit of a stinker, and he did some really bad things. Modern Uber, of course, does none of this bad stuff. We're a squeaky clean company. We've got rid of all of the dead rats. We haven't swallowed a dead rat in ages. I mean, you you can inspect all of our holes. You'll find no dead rats in any of our holes. Right. I don't wish to inspect any of your holes, but that's okay. I'll take your word for it. So. This, um, I don't know, maybe maybe we'll get a, another leak to show what's been going on from 2018 up to the, the current time. But so this the, the time it covers was really when Uber was was expanding all around the world as fast as they possibly could. And uh, without much regard to, to trifling details like laws and and permits and regulations and what have you. Yeah, this is a classic case of that Silicon Valley idea of innovate through disruption. So rather than obey laws, you just end up going, oh, we'll disrupt the market, and then the market will adapt to the disruption. Who was Who's move fast and break stuff? Was that Zuckerberg's motto? I can't remember. It's one of them. I, I thought it was the Roadrunner. No, no. Well, I'm pretty sure it was a Silicon Valley billionaire. But uh, could have been could could have been a cartoon bird. I don't know. It's it's hard to tell the difference these days. Now I should point out the Guardian reporting on this is interesting for how non-conspiratorial they want to make some of this reporting to be. So in the kind of lead document the Guardian produced about the Uber files, they refuse to call any of these shenanigans conspiratorial, relying instead on phrasing such as, during the fierce global backlash, the data shows how Uber tried to shore up support by discreetly courting prime ministers, presidents, billionaires, oligarchs, and media barons. Although the next line they have, which is leaked messages suggest Uber executives were at the same time under no illusions about the company's law-breaking, with one executive joking they'd become pirates, another conceding, we're just fucking illegal. So they don't really want to use the, the C word, and yet they're kind of describing quite a lot of conspiratorial action. Yeah, so maybe we can come back to this afterwards as a, as a more general point, but yeah, it does seem, I mean, maybe... Maybe it's simply because, like a lot of people, they consider conspiracy theory to mean just something crazy and silly and not as mundane as, as businesses doing dodgy dealings. And The Guardian is a sensible newspaper for sensible people, which is why the UK version is so transphobic. Mm. There's uh, over 124,000 documents, so there's, there's a lot a lot of stuff that could be talked about here. So... I think I don't know. I don't know about you. I've just sort of picked out the things that that, that jumped out at me as looking interesting to talk about. But but there's a lot there. I think the the common theme though seems to be seems to be this idea of um, as you say disruption of moving into various companies and basically doing as they pleased and then trying to sort of retro retroactively make themselves respectable by lobbying to get laws changed in their favor. So there are a lot of these a lot of these lobbyists doing their lobbying, much like Mr. Mark McGann. Uh, but what not not just not just uh, lobbyists, but they had a bunch of politicians on their side, most uh, notably Emmanuel Macron in France. Yeah, and this isn't a case of Emmanuel Macron prior to becoming the leader of France engaging in lobbying with a corporate entity. This is Emmanuel Macron brokering secret deals with Uber. And secret deal here is interesting because this is a classic case of how lobbying works with governments. So the French cabinet knew that Macron was having meetings with Uber. The lobbying was secret with respect to the public not with respect to the cabinet and other high-ranking officials within the French government. Mm. So it was a secret deal in that it was being kept private, so the public had no idea that Uber was lobbying to get into the French market. And it's still unusual to have the president of France be the person who's kind of leading or engaging in that lobbying. You tend to think of lobbying as kind of 
low-ranked officials trying to get up through the ranks to get to cabinet to get a paper across someone's desk to get interest here. Uber went, well, we, I mean, we could we could start from the bottom, or I could just ring my good friend Emmanuel. Like, hey, Emmanuel, let's get Uber in into France. So what's interesting about this is, A, it was lobbying being directed at the president, doing it in front of the cabinet, but keeping things secret. And also the fact that when this was revealed, Macron was going, yes, I'm very proud of the lobbying I did for Uber. Very, yes, very you know, proud he's, of he's entirely did. unapologetic, thinks he, he did absolutely nothing wrong and, and it was all to the benefit of France. But what's disturbing about this is when you start looking at the details about how Uber were acting in France at the time this lobbying was going on. So there was a lot of protests mm. by taxi drivers in France, particularly in Paris. Yes, because the French aren't, French aren't afraid to protest and, and occasionally indulge in a bit of light rioting at the drop of a hat. I mean, they're... They, they're on to what, their fifth republic now, given the revolutions they have? They're, they're, they're fond of toppling regimes from mm. time to time. And so there was a lot of protest by taxi drivers about Uber and the disruption that Uber was doing for the traditional taxi driving class. And there was a certain amount of antipathy towards Uber drivers in Paris in particular. And when Kalanick was told about this, there actually might be threats of life to Uber drivers due to these protests, he was going, well, actually, that could be quite good because, you know, violence could actually be very useful for getting these law changes through. Yes. So it's not just he asked the president of France to engage in lobbying. He's also going, look, we can engineer a toxic situation which will kind of force the government to to lobby because we're actually going to kind of almost tacitly encourage the violence here in the hope it's going to get the law changes that we want. Yes, yes, violence against Uber drivers basically makes makes Uber look like victims and the taxi industry look like look like violent oppressors or something so it is, is a good way of getting people on their side and yeah the, the the model they seem to operate on is that yeah move fast and break stuff or or the good old the good old um expression of it's better to seek forgiveness than permission they, they would just go and just start doing stuff they wouldn't ask if it was okay they'd just come in and do their thing and then try and smooth it over afterwards so and and they you know this isn't this isn't uh, any sort of uh, ignorance defence. It's not like they just did their thing, assuming it'd all be cool. They went in knowing knowing full well in some cases that they were actively breaking the law, um, but with the plan that they would get the law changed to retroactively legitimate themselves. Um, so the, the Guardian, as the Guardian puts it. It is a tactic the company has used repeatedly in markets around the world. Launch first, establish a loyal customer base, and then lobby aggressively for laws to be changed. And there's where people like Mr. McGann come in. Um, so the, the Guardian has one example of how things went in Australia, and I believe a similar it was a similar scenario here in New Zealand. Yeah, so the New, the New Zealand one is interesting because, like the Australian case, Uber arrives in the market back home. And they roll out their app and they've got their ride shares operating and the government responds by going, well, you're a taxi company. You need to be, you know, you need to be licensed the way a taxi company does, which means your drivers have to have special licenses. They need to have the right kind of training. There needs to be the right kind of insurance operating in the background if something goes wrong. And Uber's response was, oh, but we're, we're, we're not a taxi company. We're a ride share app. I mean, our drivers aren't, working for customers it just happens to be the case that if i want to go from say ponsonby to devonport i use the app and i find someone who's already driving there and i simply share their car and i give them some money they're not they're not my taxi driver they're my rideshare companion and even the people who were driving for Uber were going, yeah, that's that's not what we do. It's not as if I'm driving from point A to point B and I'm picking people up. 
by picking people up and then going, so where is your point B? Because I can I can make my point B be your point B because I've got nowhere to go apart from point B, which you're paying me to go for. And so they would do this thing where they would enter a market which had regulations around taxi companies and go, oh, no, no, we're, we're, we're not a taxi company. We're a rideshare app. We're, we're not the same. I mean, I know we act like a taxi company, but we're, we describe ourselves as a rideshare app. So the laws don't apply to us, which is why we think that your laws need to adapt to us rather than us fit into your restrictive notion of how taxi, I mean, sorry, ride shares should work. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a large part of what they've done all over. I mean, essentially, Uber's big innovation was a way of having a whole bunch of employees who you don't have to pay. Um, they've always they've always argued no, no, that no. drivers Josh, aren't our Josh, employees. They weren't, yeah, mm. they're contractors. Yeah, they're just they're contractors. contractors. They're just using the app that we've provided, but they don't work for us, so therefore we don't have any responsibilities towards them. Um, and so, in various companies, there have been various legal cases, which I think sometimes have cited some way and sometimes cited others, but I believe there have been some decisions. It's like, no, no, they are effectively your employees, so you need to treat them like employees. And this, I mean, we're kind of skipping ahead in our notes here, but one of the things which kind of speaks to the fact that the people using the Uber app as a rideshare income-generating mechanism, using my words very carefully here, were never contractors but were in fact employees, were the various surveillance models that Uber used to keep track of their contractors. Mm. Because if these people really are contractors who are traveling from point A to point B and picking people up along the way, there would be no need for Uber to have the kind of surveillance tech they built into their app infrastructure to keep track of their non-employees as they go about their work. Yes, we'll get to that in a bit. But returning to Australia, so just sort of as an example of how these papers shows that they've operated... So they, they started up in Australia in 2012 and, obviously, as, as we said, didn't have the sort of permits that, that the various state laws in Australia required for taxis. Um, so the, the Uber files contain a lot of information about how they lobbied and lobbied hard to state governments to try and change this and, and what, keeping operating all the while. So it took until um, 2015, I think. So that they'd been operating for three years. By 2015, Sydney and Melbourne were Uber's seventh and biggest, uh, quote, unprotected markets, which is what they called uh, markets where they were illegal, essentially. So they're, they're unprotected and that there was a chance they could be booted out of the country for not following the laws. Um, but fortunately for Uber, um, ACT uh, was Australian Central Territories state, uh, legalised them in 2015, and the other Australian states did starting from 2016. Um, now, this obviously annoyed the Australian taxi drivers, um, and so a bunch of licensed tax Australian taxi drivers have brought a class action suit against Uber. Um, according to The Guardian, Uber is defending the class action suit and has denied as part of the proceedings that it deliberately sought to flout state laws governing the licensing of commercial drivers and vehicles, which going by the Uber files just seems to be a complete lie. They knew full well that they were flouting state laws, uh, and that was their plan from the beginning. So moving from Australia to Russia, and actually this is one of the more worrying aspects of the story for Uber, I mean, the entire story we're telling here is worrying for how vulture capitalism actually works. But the Russian one is interesting because this is where Uber might have actually broken US anti-bribery laws because when Uber has tried to go into non-Western markets, say like China, which they've now exited, so the business DD has basically taken over the remnants of what Uber used to be in mainland China, and when they've moved into places like Russia, they're often dealing with market systems which do not resemble those in the West. So in China, people talk about how it's a capitalist system with Chinese characteristics. 
And when we talk about Russian capitalism, we talk about a capitalistic system which is run by oligarchs. And so if you want to get ahead in the Russian system, you need a few oligarchs to help kind of guide you on your way. And so Uber engaged in its move into Russia, and like China, it's largely left the Russian market. I think it's now Yandex is the is taking over the remnants of Uber because Uber kind of balked at the cost of doing business in Russia eventually. But when they tried to get into Russia, they tried to get a number of Russian oligarchs on their side. And so they courted a whole a whole bunch of them, largely from what's called the L1 group. So there's Roman Abram, Abramovich, who we've talked about in previous episodes, Alicia Yuzmanov, uh, I, I, I practiced saying this name before the podcast, and now I hear Uzmanov. Uzmanov, sounds right. No. Yep. And Mikhail Fredman. And eventually they settled on Vladimir Senin, who at the time was a highly paid, well-respected lobbyist in Russia, He's now a pro member, pro, sorry, pro, pro, a pro member, a pro Kremlin member of the Duma, so the Parliament of Russia. And the reason why their actions are likely to have broken US anti bribery laws is that when Senin was involved in lobbying on Uber's behalf to try and get taxi laws changed in Russia so that they'd be able to operate Uber there. It turned out there was a bit of a quid quo pro nature of the arrangement. That Senin at one point wanted about 800,000 US smackaroos to be able to influence, I'm putting that in scare quotes, influence taxi legislation. And Uber at the time was going, that's quite a lot of money. And we kind of think that if, if that's the nature of doing business, that money should be coming out of the L1 group. It should come out of the oligarchs. You know, they should be paying Senin to do this work. I mean, if we pay Senin to lobby on our behalf and he's got connections with the Duma, that kind of looks a little bit like we're trying to grease the wheels of politics by giving money to politicians. And that that's probably not very good. And 800,000 smackaroos is quite a lot of money. Now, the Guardian notes that they seem to agree to pay about 650,000k. 600, yeah, 650,000k. Although the story is worded in such a way that it's not actually clear that money was paid. So it might have been a case of, I want, I don't know why it's Transylvanian, but he's now, I want $800,000. Ah, 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 ah. And Uber goes, uh, we can give you 650,000. But it's not clear they actually did give him that money. But if they did, then they may well have been engaging in not just lobbying, but actually bribing a foreign member of state to change laws, which is the kind of thing the US does look ever so slightly askance upon. Unless you're the CIA, you're not meant to actually get involved in changing other government's opinions. No, no. So we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah, worldwide, there seems to be a, a lot of a, a lot of stuff being conducted in secret. Uh, you talked about uh, the, the meetings with Emmanuel Macron and what have you, and a lot of it seems to be a sort of quite a sort of informal secrecy from where government ministers just um, just just didn't just didn't mention that they'd been at this meeting and these Uber folks were there lobbying for them to change laws and, you know, just just kind of escaped their attention, I guess, a little bit. Just uh, didn't, didn't seem yeah, worthy so of mention. I'm not quite sure how it works in the US, but in a Westminster system like they have in the UK and we have in Australia and Aotearoa, when a minister has a meeting, it's meant to go into their diary. And those diaries are public in, in information. So you can ask for a copy of the minister's diary for a week, month, or a day through an official information access request. And so the whole point about putting meetings into diaries is so the public can then go, oh, so you had a meeting with someone with 
Uber three days before there was a vote in Parliament about rideshare legislation. I mean, that's kind of interesting. We should probably ask what was said in that meeting, who attended the meeting, are there any minutes? So one really convenient way to make sure that people don't ask those inconvenient questions is to conveniently forget to put the meeting into your diary. Or not just conveniently forget, just decide to deliberately, I'm just not going to note this one down. No one needs to know about this. Yeah, so there's... There's a bit of dodginess around. What um, what was the business with Biden and the Davos group? So Biden was meant to be attending a meeting at the Davos group, and he was in a meeting with Kalanick at the time and was running late for attending the meeting at the Davos group. And Kalanick texted someone else in Uber saying, well, she's actually quite good. The more time he spends talking with me, the less time he spends talking with them. So he's going, well, look, this is actually quite good. If they're going to talk about anything which affects our bottom line, delaying Biden arriving on the floor means less can be done. So, yes, they were quite quite happy to have done that. Was it I, – I, I didn't note it down, but I remember a um, an exchange where he was – was it he was held up by the president – and so he made a point of saying every every minute where we have to wait is, is a – they were very petty about making sure that they were made to wait, so therefore they were going to give him less of their time or something. He was quite quite blasé about um, chatting with the president, I think. Mm. Mm. But moving on – one one thing that stuck out to me, which was a thing I, – I don't, I don't think this was any sort of a secret at all – but the Uber files did give a bit more detail on exactly how it worked, was just the, the, the fact that Uber was, and as far as I know, still is heavily subsidised by a basically bottomless well of investor money. It's always been the case. They, they move into a territory and the prices charged to passengers are very, very low. The pay uh, paid to drivers is very high to encourage both passengers and drivers to start using their um, system. And once things get established fairly quickly, the prices start to go up and uh, the amount of money paid to drivers fairly quickly and fairly significantly starts going down. Um, But at least to begin with, this is all made possible because everything is subsidised by this investor money. And it almost, I mean, it's its not a Ponzi scheme because in a Ponzi scheme, you're using investor money to pay out uh, people who invest later on. This is, but um, it, it, it certainly seemed, it, it, it had echoes of a Ponzi scheme where, you know, this whole, whole system is simply being propped up because they're taking money from their investors and not, investing it into their technology or company or anything, they're paying it straight to uh, drivers to keep them on board. I mean, isn't this why they kind of talk about investors in vulture capitalists, things like this, as whales? There's a bit of that. I mean, I don't know. I've, I've, I've read stuff about sort of um, Silicon Valley in general and the whole sort of disruptors and what have you. I think the article I was reading about was about the um, – what was the one that collapsed? We WeWork? The, the... Oh, yes, the one that Apple TV is making a TV series about with Jared Leto hot off the presses from his award-winning portrayal of Michael Morbius in the film that got released twice. Mm, that's, that's how good it was, I assume. Never seen it. No, me neither. Um, yes, yeah, so, so it, it was an article in particular about WeWork, but it was it was talking about how this is the general thing where you'll get yeah, these, these whales, these giant investors will essentially just anoint anoint one company as okay you're the one you're the one we've uh, picked to succeed and then just pile endless streams of cash into them so that they're able to undercut all their competitors and take the dominant position and uber seems to be one of the earliest examples of that happening as far as i know the uber files don't get into the question of money laundering but i understand that that's that is why in some cases some of these people are willing to to funnel huge amounts of cash through them, but yeah, just the the, the talk of the, the the subsidies being paid directly to drivers, which then dry up, which then so then the drivers so, so in, in various places, drivers are taking legal action against them because they're getting to the point where they can't 
can't make a living off of doing this when they used to previously. But perhaps we should move on to the um, to some of the some of the other uh, legal issues around privacy and and use of data, uh, which is what you brought up earlier. So there's um, Uber, and this is something we've known about for a little while. Uber Uber has a thing that they call God View, or sometimes Heaven, mm, mm. which is is part of their system that lets them. This is what you were talking about before. Lets them uh, monitor individual rides going through their system. Uh, in real time, if necessary. Uh, so there's one instance uh, where um, Sir Peter Hendy, who was the London Transport Commissioner in 2014, uh, noticed in one of these one of these communications uh, released as part of the Uber files, um, there's a, a note dated March, March 2014, where the company inter- uh, internally notes that um, Sir Hendy himself has used an Uber car at least twice. Presumably, as you know, uh, something they made a note of to to use as as um, uh, ammunition against him, perhaps. You know, if if he starts complaining about it. And once again, if Uber is a company of rideshare contractors, then really Uber shouldn't care about who the customers of their contractors are. They shouldn't people should be providing the infrastructure to allow the app to work, rather than being concerned about the clients of their company, which is quite obviously what they're interested in when they're looking at the God's view or heaven view. They're tracking the customers of their company, which once again speaks to the fact that it's not a rideshare app. Yes. And I mean, I could, I could understand the, uh, I, I could, I could see how they could justify um, tracking this information and, and, and storing it in case, you know, for things like dispute resolution or what have you, if a customer complains they were taken a long way or something like that, you know, it, it, it would be useful for them to be able to, to pull up the details of a particular ride so they could prove exactly what had gone on. Um, but there are still other things like, for instance, um, Mr. McGann himself um, says one of – uh, he says that sort of one of the things that made him sort of worry about who he was mixed up with, I guess, um, was one time he was uh, on his way to meet Joe Bertram, who at the time was Uber's regional manager for Northern Europe. And he was running late and he sent her an email saying, sorry, I'm I'm on my way, but I'm running late and received a reply from her. Yeah, I'm watching you on heaven, already saw the ETA and realized that that he was being watched you know he was like he was taking an uber vehicle to this meeting and realized that that people could just watch your uh ride in progress in real time without your knowledge and the, yeah and the thing the disturbing part about that is if we consider how many people are using uber at any individual mo- moment the fact that bertrand knew it was mcgann who was in that car I mean, that presumably when he got in the car, it was flagged. It wasn't a case of, oh, I should, I should do a random search through all the travel going on in Uber at this time to see if the person I'm meeting with is in a car right now. Presumably it was more of a case of, ah, so one of the members of our team has just got into a car. So it's a quite egregious privacy break when you think mm. about it. Well, yes. No, so I mean, I... In my in my day job, I've worked for several software companies that that store users' data and all that. So I've had to um, had to do training courses on privacy. So you know, company wide things they make they make everybody do these things, so you know exactly how the law works. And assuming privacy laws work the same, pretty much the same all around the world, there's a whole lot of uh, requirements around. You know, you have to tell people that you're storing their data there has to be a good reason for it essentially you have to you know you you can't um collect information from them that has nothing to do with the purpose that you, you the, the things that you need to know about from them um and one of the things is that um you're only allowed to use the data uh, that you collect for uh, a with the permission of the user or and B for things directly relating to what you're doing. So again, like I say, if it were uh, around settling a dispute, for instance, then and and the a passenger had sort of given you permission, yes, please, please pull my data for this trip, 
so that we can prove exactly what had gone on and, and sort something out, then that would be a legitimate use of a person's data. But keeping tabs on what people are doing without telling them um, and for, you know, doing it for your own game or gain or simply to check up on a, on a colleague uh, would very much be against privacy laws in New Zealand and I'm pretty sure privacy laws uh, around the rest of the world. And that wasn't the only app they were using to engage in misusing data, was it? There was also the Greyball app. Greyball, yes. So Greyball, I think it came out of that they referred to people as eyeballs, meaning people watching the system or something. Uh, but basically, it's, uh, how Greyball worked was that Uber would identify people or in some case areas that were likely to be in uh, either law enforcement or regulation. So those areas could be the area around a police station or something like that. And if they'd identified a person using Uber as being one of these people or being in one of these areas, then they, the app would be directed to show them a fake view. So they could see in the app cars moving around and, and, and their car... Um, a car that they'd ordered possibly coming for them or what have you, and it would be complete fiction. These cars that they were seeing that were being shown to them in the app did not exist at all. Um, and so it seems they used this to um, to try and thwart uh, regulators or law enforcement people trying to set up stings to... Um, you know, you've if 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 they want proof that these people are, are basically acting as unlicensed taxi drivers, then you go on Uber, uh, book a ride, and then see how it works. And then afterwards, you can say, "Ha look, this is obviously uh, an an, un an unlicensed taxi service in operation or something." And so they could, by using Greyball, if if they if they figured if they were onto someone and, and figured this is probably what they were doing, they would then send them this fake data so that they'd think that ordered um, an Uber, but then it would just never arrive because it never existed in the first place. And then they could use this in combination with the, the God View application to monitor the cars that were going on. And if, if these people had, if, if one of these people who they thought might be uh, in law enforcement or some sort of a regulator had genuinely ordered an actual Uber car, they could then follow that and, and would at times send instructions to the driver to to drive in circles or or just hijack the um, hijack that booking or what have you. So this again, this this was not brought to light in the Uber files initially. The existence of Greyball was exposed in 2017, so we've known about it for a while, but we, we've known that it existed, but not much in the way of detail about how long it had been in use and how it was uh, used. And the Uber files show that it, it's been used for um, quite some time before 2017. And they also show that top executives, including Kalanick himself, knew about it, approved of it, and in some cases seemed to actually encourage its use. So there was one particular email exchange from 2014 where Kalanick doesn't seem to have directed people to use Greyball to fight uh, attempts at regulation, but having been told that they were using it to fight regulation uh, in the Netherlands in this case, uh, responded to being told that it, with great response and plan moving forward. So he, so there definitely seems to be evidence that he was entirely on board and, and approving of their attempts to use this. Yeah, so this is actually a classic case of what Chomsky calls institutional analysis. So Chomsky's example is when talking about why you don't need to uh, say there's a conspiracy, that Fox News has a anti-liberal bias, going, well, look, all you need to do is you need to know that Rupert Murdoch is at the top of the chain, and you do anything to get Rupert Murdoch's acclaim. So Rupert Murdoch never needs to tell people, paint liberals in a bad light, paint Republicans in a good light. You simply need a whole bunch of managers who know that Rupert Murdoch's views on these things are, I like this thing. And so they do things that support Rupert Murdoch's views and would never upset him. So Kalanick never needs to say, use the Greyball app. All Kalanick needs to say is, it's, it's, you're doing great work there. Now, Kalanick has responded to all of these claims. 
And he's gone, well, look, uh, neither myself nor anyone else at Uber has ever been accused or charged with any offense related to using Rayball by any enforcement agency. And there's kind of an implied ellipsis there of dot, dot, dot. So that means we did nothing wrong. And this is this is a common move in this kind of corporate malfeasance or shenanigan to go, well, look, nobody's charged us with wrongdoing, which means, of course, we can't have done anything wrong because we did do something wrong. They would have charged us. So ipso facto, that proves that we didn't do the bad things associated with us. And this is a, a curious kind of legal reasoning here that, look, if the authorities don't feel they have sufficient evidence to charge us in a court of law with this kind of malfeasance, then that is obviously evidence we did nothing wrong, which, of course, is not actually how evidence works in the real world. It's simply in a court of law, we have different evidential standards, but people use that legal evidential standard to go, well, look, if the court haven't charged us, then obviously we are squeaky clean, no moral wrongdoing on our part, no siree, nothing to see here. No. Yes, I mean, that, that was so that, that claim came from a statement, I think, given through a spokesperson about Greyball. The, the, the justification for Greyball, because obviously you could say, well, we've never been, um, we've never been charged of any crimes for it, and a person still might ask, yeah, but why are you even doing it in the first place? Their, their justification is that Greyball is supposedly meant to protect Uber drivers from assault and harassment by taxi drivers. I, I guess the scenario is they've they, 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 they've identified someone as working for a taxi driver. When they see a person who works for a taxi company hiring an Uber, maybe they're afraid that they've hired an Uber just so that they can beat up the driver when they arrive. And and that that's they do that to thwart them or something, but it seems a very, very elaborate system to have set up for what sounds like a fairly niche scenario, and and hard to Especially predict. Since, as far as I can tell, you could just use God's view or heaven to do exactly the same thing. You don't need a separate app which then spoofs things. You simply need an app or view like God's view or heaven, and go well. We'll just block that user from being able to use Uber. If you think that person's going to go around assaulting people, you simply make it impossible for them to summon a Uber taxi, I mean, sorry, Uber rideshare car. Mm. And of course, there's the, instant, there's, there's the question of how they uh, come up with the list of people that the Greyball app gets used for in the first place. I mean, some of it's geographically based. So if it's if it's some, someone who's summoning an Uber from outside a police station, then maybe then they go on the list. But it was also individual users of the system would get flagged as people who um, uh, get given the Greyball app. And the only way, basically, they could be putting people onto this um, list is by violating their privacy. Essentially, there, there are claims that Kalanick directed people to look at the look at the credit card information or something of of Uber users so that they could identify them as being particular, you know, police officers, regulation, people from departments concerned with taxi regulation or what have you. So even if they were only doing it with um, people who worked for for taxi companies or something rather than law enforcement, there'd still be a breach of privacy laws there. So it doesn't, no matter how they spin it, it definitely seems that um, dodgy, and by dodgy I mean illegal, things have gone on there. Mm. Now that brings us to the end of our list. I I'd sort of I, I'd put a list at the end of th- that we could maybe tie this into the other corporate conspiracies we've talked about. But I kind of did that assuming that we might not have enough to talk about to fill a whole episode. But I think it kind of looks like we have. So maybe we don't need to see exactly how much it compares. Yeah. Yeah. It turns out there was a lot, a lot more to talk about. I mean, I guess the reason why we wanted to bring up the previous examples we've talked about, and those are the VW emissions scandal, the Panama Papers, and the Paradise Papers, which, of course, stars our favourite Star Wars character, Mossack Fonseca, whose only 
only near e- e- equaled by my new Star Wars character, Jurian Spliff, who I'm I'm sure must exist in the mm. Star Wars universe. That's got to be it one of sounds so yeah. Star Wars is Jurian Spliff. Uh, the Guardians already run a section, I think, was it last year? The Polluters Project looking at kind of yeah, not too long big ago. pollution and the way that they've been lobbying behind the scenes. Josh, of course, has a really big thing about the Purdue family and Oxycontin. And we've probably talked about a whole bunch of other ones in the past. We must have, yes. And the rationale behind that was what's interesting from the perspective of studying conspiracy theories about the uberphiles is this has all happened before. This is just a repeat of another scandal by a large corporate entity engaging in shady secretive practices in the background. And every time this occurs, people say, oh, we should we should bring in regulation to make sure this kind of thing never happens again. And then we don't. And so it happens again. Mm. And part of the worry, of course, as we see with the kind of lobbying activities going on by Uber, is that these corporations are aware that governments want to regulate this kind of behavior out of existence. So these corporations engage in lobbying behind the scenes to ensure that that regulation never occurs. And so we keep on getting the same issues coming through, and we get government saying we're going to do something about this, and then we let the lobbyists not allow us to change the system. So last week's patron bonus episode was called All Lobbyists Must Die, because in that patron bonus episode, I made the rather milk toke of milk toke? Milk toke. Milk toke is is a kind of weed version of That's what you do with the Durian Spliff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Durian Spliff is a very milk toke character in Star Wars. Mm. I made the rather milk toast observation that lobbyists should be killed. That there should be no lobbyists, and if you if there are lobbyists out there, they should be exterminated from so good from good society, which I take to be a non-controversial and humane thing to do for the good of the human race. I would have said fired into the sun, but yes. I mean, it's it's a slow death, and I I just mm. I, I want it over and done with now. I don't want to waste our technology on launching lobbyists in, in, into the sun. There's a waste of resources. And this is just more evidence for my hypothesis that we should not have lobbyists. Yeah, it's kind of hard to argue, really. Uh, so that's Uber. Uber. For, uh, just have you have you been a, an Uber user before when you weren't in China? I've. I mean, I've used I've used Uber back home. Mm. So coming I mean, back home, we've got Ola, which is the one which I think I used by preference because it's the home grown I think it's locally owned version. Yeah. But I have been known particularly on on a night where drinking has been involved to load up all the different rideshare apps I have. And especially given I was living in a position of precarity back when I was at home, finding the cheapest ride back from Auckland to the North Shore. So yes, I have has I have used Uber in the past. And this does make me less inclined to use them in future. Yeah, I mean, I've I've been in other people's Ubers before, but I've never. I don't think I've ever actually used it myself. I've always, yeah, I've always found it very dodgy. As like my understanding of, quite aside from all this, all the illegalities that we've just talked about now, it, it always seemed like um, Uber. I don't know if it's still the case. It certainly used to be the case that they posted the largest loss of any company in the world because the whole point was they operated a massive loss um, held up by the gigantic quantities of investor cash they had at their disposal and that their only the, the only way their business model could work is if they completely destroy the taxi industry so that they become the only game in in town and then hike their prices up enormously, which the whole thing seemed... Oh, yeah, dodgy, I, but I do have to say... I never felt comfortable using Uber mm. knowing about its market disruption thing, but there is a... And this is the problem of precarity. In a situation where you can't afford to be... You can't afford to be virtuous because then you can't afford to eat. You end up having to make some really reluctant decisions about 
You know, I don't want to use this company, but I do also want to go home to my bed. Now, admittedly, you might yeah, say, well, I should have made better decisions earlier on in the night. But those decisions have already been made, and there are consequences, which is my ethically yeah, I mean, the one thing. Yes, the, one, the thing that actually disappointed me the most, though, is just how rubbish taxis have been, certainly here in New Zealand, at least. So the, the thing about Uber is that, you know, it, it actually gave a much, much better experience than booking a taxi from what I've seen. The one time, because I'm, I'm not a drinker, so I'm usually able to drive myself home no matter where I am. But the one time I've needed to be driven somewhere in recent time was when I was going in for a, um, a medical procedure, which I'd be, I needed to get there early in the morning. And because I was going to be um, under anesthetic, I wouldn't be able to drive myself home and what have you. And this so because I had to get there. Josh had his second penis attached, I should point out. Something like that. And so, so I had to be there early in the morning, uh, too early to want to get my wife out of bed to drive me there. So I thought I'll book a taxi. Um, and so the night before, I went on a, the, one of the bigger taxi company sites and uh, booked a taxi to pick me up early in the morning and drive me off to this place. It was only a very short drive. Um, and so I hauled myself out of bed at some ungodly hour that morning, got myself dressed, all packed up, uh, stood outside to wait for my taxi, uh, and the taxi never came. And I rang the taxi company and got a dispatcher who had just come onto their shift and seemed to have no idea what was going on and couldn't find any record of the taxi that I'd booked and eventually just grabbed a nearby a, a guy who happened to be in the area and, and assigned him to me and I got picked up and I arrived there in time only because I'd, I'd allowed lots of extra time beforehand. But the whole thing was just a complete shambles. And, and so after that, frankly, I don't didn't actually blame anyone for using Uber after that because it really did seem to be uh, – it, it's, it's just sort of disappointing that it was actually – it is a, a genuinely good product, but the business behind it is just so dodgy. Yeah, I remember in the pre-Uber days, if you had a party and then finishing up at 2 or 3 in the morning and people wanting to get taxis home – and they would, you'd have to ring the taxi on a landline or your cell phone. And then you'd have to describe your address over the phone, which was never particularly good if the person was slightly drunk. So they would always blame the dispatcher for not understanding what they were saying. It was quite clearly user error. And then you'd be, all right, so you, the taxi will be with you in 45 minutes. And so then you'd go, well, the party is over and done with, but now I've got these guests who are going to be around for another 30 to 40 minutes. And so you do that, do we have another drink or do we start to sober up? Was Uber, you would just, you know, it knew where you were and there were lots mm. of cars around. So yes, I can see why it got adopted so quickly because A, it was a better service and B, it took at least in Aotearoa, taxi companies a very long time to admit that the reason why people were using the service was because it was a better experience than getting a taxi. So there was a big resistance mm. to any kind of change in the taxi industry, which then led to what appeared to be the sour grapes hypothesis of taxi drivers going, well, people don't want to use our services anymore, which kind of was sour grapes because they were refusing to move with the times, even if moving with the times meant competing with a company with a vast trove of money which they were then going to use to destroy your business. And that's all fairly depressing. Well, here I have to use taxi apps all the time because I don't speak, I don't speak the language and also almost, every, almost everyone uses a taxi app here because the, the way that apps work in this country, there's an app for everything and it tends to just link up with existing subs. Mm. Well, that's not depressing either. I was going to say what's not depressing is um, antiquities being found and returned to their rightful owners, which is a thing we're going to talk about in our bonus episode. A kind of reverse Indiana Jones. Mm, kind of. Or did you ever watch that Carmen Sandiego series they made recently? Uh, I saw my boys watched a cartoon, a recent cartoon Carmen yeah. Sandiego. What was that, that, that That was a case of her, her stealing 
antiquities or precious items to return them to their rightful owners. So yeah, it was Carmen Sandiego really as a heroic figure. Yeah. Mm. So we're, we're, we're going to be talking about someone who's, who's essentially Carmen Sandiego in that case. We're going to be talking about the Snyder Cut, which was released. Because because we, we had to get around to that eventually. eventually. Um, and dodgy dealings in a local university. So Local being. Lo- local, yes. Lo- local to me and, and local to your heart. It's true. So if you'd like to hear about those things, uh, then why don't you just become a patron and then you can. As simple as that. Go to patreon.com and look for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. And if you're already a patron, uh, then your work is done. You can, you, you can go about your business and safe in the knowledge that a patron episode will be winging your way because I know how to upload them properly now and I'm not going to forget this time like I did a couple of times before. Uh, and I think... I think uh, that we're done for the week. We are. Have you any last thoughts? Mm. No, no. Apart from, I, I no, took a taxi no. via app earlier. Today. I took two taxis via app earlier today. Jolly good. Uh, well, in that case, uh, I don't think we should prolong things any longer. Uh, I'm just going to say goodbye. Goodbye. The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy is Josh Anderson and me, Dr. M. R. X. Dentith. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember, remember, oh December, what a night.